Let's pray. Father God, you know the ears and the minds of our people. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would go from what you've given me into receptive minds and open ears, that your Holy Spirit may work in their lives. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, Tony Aldred introduced this new series called Desire and she reminded us of creation and uh, she called it and the beginning of bad uh, as we uh, listened to that and then she unfolded this concept of desire that is around particularly as it related to uh, Eve and Adam and she's made a statement that said desires of themselves are not bad but if uncontrolled produce chaos and of course we saw that in the unfolding of Genesis 3 chapter 3 and last week Tracy uh, was talking to us about Jacob and Esau and how the grasping desires of Jacob uh, produced lasting consequences of chaos and uh, do you remember the antidote that she uh, gave to us Three words, trust, pray, and surrender. And of course, at the night services at 5pm Undone, Sandy was dealing with Noah and his uh, life after the flood, and Winnie was dealing with Israel, Aaron, and the golden calf. And both of these stories illustrated uncontrolled desire producing chaos. And uh, if you haven't or weren't able to be at any of those services, I commend to you the on-demand feature on our website to be able to catch up with those. But I also this morning want to commend the strong, biblically-based women preachers we have in this church. I'm, I'm privileged to follow, and I'm just so thrilled that we are a, a spiritual gifts-based church in the sense that we operate according to the spiritual gifts that are given us. And so that's why they're preaching, because that's a spiritual gift. Um, and that's why I don't play drums anymore. <laughs> okay, fine. Today we're dealing with David and Bathsheba, and the cartoon there reminded us a little bit of that story, but I want to give you a quick overview. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his commanders. Sin number one. Bathsheba becomes pregnant as a result. David tries to cover the sin by manipulating Uriah and Bathsheba into having sex so that David can claim Uriah as the father. Sin number two. This attempt only fails because Uriah was a noble a soldier and a real servant of David and he, he wants to stay at the palace near David. So David manipulates Joab, another of his commanders, and uh, arranges for him to put Uriah at the front of the battle 
and then suddenly pull his troops back and so Uriah is caught and exposed and he's killed by the enemy. Sin number three, adultery to murder, a downward spiral. What I might call an inappropriate uncovering leading to a massive cover-up. Uncontrolled desire producing chaos. So as we continue in this series on desire, I want to make four bold statements this morning. Why are they bold? Well, they're bold because I don't think our culture would normally make them. And I don't think they fit in most people's natural thinking. And the first bold statement is, it all starts in the mind, or the mind's eye. It all starts in the mind or in the mind's eye. You see, we don't really know what the thoughts were that went through David's mind, but we do know he saw what he shouldn't have seen, and that is where his sin began. His desire to act on what he saw was conceived in his mind. So, see, David should have been with his soldiers. As a king, he should have been leading his soldiers into battle. And at that time, while this was all happening, his soldiers were fighting the Ammonites, one of the um, Canaanite tribes. And uh, he wasn't with them. He was at home in the palace having a weekend off or something. I don't know. Maybe it was a long weekend for him. But he shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have been at home. He should have been with his soldiers. Some commentators, too, talk about how what he saw was Bathsheba in a ritual bath, coming in and out of a ritual bath, in a private courtyard in one of the houses nearby. And because the palace was tall, he had the overview, so to speak. And as such, Bathsheba was totally innocent in this to begin with, of course. Now, we don't know that that was true, but that's what is suggested. But however, what is obvious is that there's a huge power imbalance. We've got the king, and we've got a woman who's married to one of David's soldiers. Now, while this story is the story of a man and his sin with a woman, the principles I'm going to raise are applicable to whatever situation you find yourself in or confronted with. You see, there's a multiplicity of desires that can lead to temptation in our human life. But if it all starts in the mind, where does that all come from? Where does that start from? In the first week of our series, Tony was talking about the concept of desire and she was explaining how Eve saw with her eyes the forbidden fruit on the tree of life. In Genesis 3 it says she saw the fruit of the tree, good for food, was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Now if it was mouldy and all rotten, not a problem. But it was pleasing to the eye. God created all we needed and it was there in the garden. God gave us freedom within that garden, within certain limits. God set those limits and Eve tested those limits. And the consequences were exactly as God promised. 
They were expelled from the garden, denied access to the tree of life and eternal life. And we have been ever since denied the eternal life until Jesus came and as you explained so well, that was sorted out at the death of Jesus. So where does that all come from? James in his letter, pastoral letter to the churches um, in uh, chapter 1, uh, he's writing to the scattered tribes, the Jewish tribes scattered through, uh, throughout the world. These are readers of faith in Jesus. So, um, and the context is when you come across trials and temptations, a very human experience. And he says in verse 13, no one when tempted should say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire being lured and enticed by it. Then when desire has conceived and sometimes literally uh, it engenders sin and when it is fully grown gives birth to death. No one is tempted uh, should say, I'm being tempted by God. But one is tempted by one's own desire. The temptation to sin starts in our minds and it has origins in our fallen nature, the consequences of the events that were recorded and talked to us about in Genesis chapter 3 in the first week of the series. But wait, you might say, aren't we called saints? Yes, that's true. We are saints as in our relationship to Jesus Christ as Lord, but it doesn't mean we're saintly. That takes time. A, a relationship with God over time and a relationship with other believers will produce the more saintly relationship and, and nature. That takes time. And no matter where you are on your journey uh, with Jesus along that uh, continuum, if you like, of becoming more holy, um, we still have the capacity to sin, no matter where we are on the line. New believer, long-term saint. We still have the capacity to sin, and we will have until Christ returns. So bold statement I made firstly was, it all starts in the mind or the mind's eye. And the second bold statement I want to make is each one of us has the capacity to give into and resist temptation. Each one of us has the capacity to give into and resist temptation. Now, in the interests of being authentic this morning, I need to say that I am all too aware of my own weaknesses. And as a man, I identify to some extent with David's temptation. I know where my mind and my eyes can lead me if left to their own devices. But God's word reminds me, no testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. 
The Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Corinth and the new believers in particular were having a difficulty divorcing themselves from the culture of Corinth which was quite pagan and becoming more like Jesus and leaving that behind and stepping in to the relationship with Jesus. And so he was reminding them that this testing that they have is common to man and there is a way out alongside of the temptation. And it's like there are two doors that come when there's a desire or a temptation presented to us. First, it is the door to desire, to follow through with the desire to act on that. That's the door. But there's also a way out door. I don't mean it's way out, as in it's unusual, but it's the way out. It's an exit door. If you turn around and look for it, it's there. God says it is. With the testing will be provided a way out, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. I don't know the thoughts that went through David's mind, but perhaps this progression speaks to you. He says, mm, I can't sleep. I'll take a walk on the rooftop. That's innocent enough. Who hasn't walked on the top of their roof? <laughs> well, yeah, anyway. Um, but I've walked around in my lounge room at night when I can't sleep. I don't go outside because it's cold and dark and horrible, but uh, if I had a flat roof, maybe I would walk on it like David. And then secondly, maybe he was thinking, I'm king and all I survey belongs to me. Perhaps that's a little too bragging because, you know, we can all make that mistake. We live in a beautiful state and as I was standing at my lounge room looking out across the river this morning, I was thinking, what a privilege to be able to live in a place like this and to even in our situation own our own home, which I know isn't becoming uh, that easy for most people these days. What a privilege. But I, it's not from me. God gave it all to us. Same as David was looking at what he had was from God, not himself. So whilst it is all ours, it's not all ours. Perhaps then David said, well, actually, I'm bored. Boring. How do I get some interest back in my life? And this, is, this sort of thought is starting to become dangerous. See, he should have, should have been in the battle, not, not on the roof of his house. But as soon as he started to look for something to fill the void in his life or the hole in his a God-shaped hole in his heart, as Winnie was talking about last Sunday night, then he's in, it's becoming more dangerous. And finally, maybe he said, I work hard as king. I deserve this. And who hasn't said that about something that we desired? You know, whatever it is. F something physical, like a new fridge or a new car. Or, or whatever, who hasn't said, I deserve this, I work hard for it. And is that found familiar to you? We don't know what David thought, but whatever he thought, he thought, his thoughts sent him on a journey. 
He opened the door to temptation. And uh, notice the subtle shifts in his thinking and actions. There's a progression downward. Firstly, he makes an inquiry. And he rationalised this in his own thinking. He said in verse 3, who is she? And uh, I'm only going to take a look. Just one look. That's all. One long look. Maybe a second one. But you see, I say he must have known that was where Uriah, his soldier, lived. And so when they said to him, oh, isn't that Uriah's wife? That should have been the end of the matter. Should have been the end of the matter. But despite the information that she was Uriah's wife, he begins that spiral. And he invites her inside. Now, I don't think it was for a cup of tea. I really don't think that was on his mind. Nice cup of tea or a glass of vino or something. It's very hard to make the exit door when you've already gone in the temptation door and slammed it shut. But there's still a way out. There's still a way out, but he didn't take it. And then he misused his position and power as king and he committed adultery. He's actually gone in and slammed that door. There's no exit there now. And I suggest to you that he actually had already committed his sin in his mind with his sending someone to find out who Bathsheba was. Now, David was not alone when he was tempted. Well, it was, talks about in the text, three, at least three servants knew, but this was a king's... Uh, thing over in the days that the servants didn't matter and they were uh, kept secret and sworn to secrecy and all that stuff but I'm not talking about the three servants I'm talking about God was in the know God was all knowing and all seeing and knew what David was embarking on and then in um, Hebrews 4 uh, verses 14 to 16 and I want to give you a bit more context by going back to verses uh, 12 and 13 of the chapter um, indeed it says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing until it divides soul from spirit joints from marrow it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart and before him no creature is hidden but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. And then verse 14, as on the screen. Since then, we have, such a great, uh, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, or some texts have our faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of help, uh, help in time of need. We have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Even before Jesus came to earth, David was not alone when tempted. God was there. 
I am not alone when I'm tempted. The Holy Spirit is there. You are not alone when tempted. The Holy Spirit is aware of that. We need to acknowledge our weakness. There's three steps, I think, to dealing with this in our minds. First one is acknowledge our weakness. Because Jesus can empathise with us. That's what God's word says. And if God's word says it, that's what it is. And, and the action that we need to take in this is to own up. Acknowledge the door marked temptation. Second step is to acknowledge God's identification with us through Jesus. Tempted in every way, verse says, 15 says. He is the unseen witness. Acknowledge God's identification with us and the action for that is to turn around. Look for the way out door. And the third step is to approach God's throne of grace with confidence. And the action there, I suggest, is to move metaphorically and physically and spiritually. Open the way out door and enter. So, bold statement number two was that each one of us has the capacity to give in to and to resist temptation. Bold statement number three that I want to make this morning is each of us is capable of winning the battle over temptation. From capacity to resist to capability requires a mind shift, a shift in our thinking. The, way to, the easiest way to describe this is you can, have, you can buy lithium batteries these days, big ones, the ones they put in cars, you can buy those. But unless that battery is actually connected to the mechanisms in an electric car and the motors in an electric car, it's only a capacity. It's not a capability. When you put that capacity that's there into a car, it becomes a capability to move you. And so each of us is capable, not just has the capacity, but is capable of winning the battle over to Romans 12, 2, um, in uh, the New Testament, uh, says this, and I'll read to you verses 33 from 11 onwards to give you a context. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor, who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then Paul goes on, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, on the basis of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And verse 2, do not be conformed to this age or the pattern of this world, some texts put, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind so that you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul calls it a mind renewal, a shift in our thinking. In counselling, we used to sometimes call it um, 
brainwashing because we'd say when thought thinking patterns are faulty or un, uh, unlogical, illogical, it's like the brain is dirty, muddy. Thought processes are muddied and they need cleaning, so we need to brainwash with rethinking the things through. Paul is much more polite. He says it's the renewing of the mind. And this is facilitated by the Holy Spirit and is an integral part of the process that I talked about before of becoming more like Jesus. And this process of renewing of the mind leads to, leads to an actual transformation, a change that is evident, an inward renewal that produces an outward uh, action. And in so doing, we actually become more authentic. This mind change enables us to more readily know what God's will is and isn't. So we be more able to readily align ourselves with Jesus. And Paul is saying this is a process, an ongoing process. Eugene Peterson, who uh, produced the Message Bible, uh, paraphrased the Bible, puts it like this. So he says in verse 12, 1 to 2, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life uh, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside and from the inside out. Readily recognise what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Fix your attention on God. Allow him to bring out the best in you. Walk with Jesus, you'll be changed from the inside out. And you'll be embracing authenticity, being real. So bold statement number three is, each of us is capable of winning the battle over temptation. David was, I am, you are. Bold statement number four is, contentment is the key. If we were contented, wouldn't the advertising industry suffer? Not only that, but contentment is the antidote to boredom. When we're discontented or bored, we start looking for something to make life fun again or for something to fill the void, as Winnie talked about. Out-of-control desire can lead to chaos, as the account of David and Bathsheba reminds us, and destroys relationships and families. And just like a stone thrown into a pond sends ripples right across the water, so this is true of uncontrolled desires damaging uh, relationships and um, people. Consequences for David were far-reaching. 
Read chapter 12 of 2 Samuel will give you the consequences that David faced in the immediate. And uh, I said at the beginning, David should not have been on the palace roof. He should have been leading his army. Are there places you and I shouldn't be or shouldn't go? Contentment is the key. Uh, in 1 Timothy, Paul is talking to young Timothy and he's, the context is that um, he's warning Timothy to avoid the lust for money because in the culture around him there are some who think that religion is a way to make financial gain, that religion is a fast way to a fast buck. And so he says to uh, Timothy in verse 6, a devout life brings wealth, but it's the rich simplicity of being yourself before God. Since we entered the world penniless and will leave it penniless, if we have bread on the table and shoes on our feet, that's enough. Contentment is the key. Discontentment can bring about a restlessness and a sense of unfulfillment in our lives where we can find ourselves metaphorically on the roof looking at something we shouldn't be looking at. We've all experienced discontentment at some stage or other in our life. So reflect on these godly words from First Peter. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Discipline starts. A discipline yourself. Keep alert like a roaring lion. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for somebody to devour. This is a reality check for us. The devil, your adversary, prowls. This is real, folks. As real as a serpent was to Eve, uh, the devil prowls around. So I said at the beginning I was making four bold statements. Well, that's not where the story of David ends, thankfully. But wait, there's more. There's a whole lot more. Second Samuel through to First Kings chapter 2 documents the remainder of David's life. He didn't continue as a failure. He was confronted about his sin by God using the prophet Nathan in an intriguingly powerful way. And he confessed and God took away his sin, but not all the consequences of his sin. And their child died. Thankfully, that's not where David's story ends. So I'm going to make a fifth bold statement. There can be restoration after failure. There is redemption. Failure is not the end of the story for David and it need not be the end of the story for us. And we know this because in the opening words of the New Testament in the um, first uh, chapter and first verse of Matthew, we see these read, we read these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God was forgiving so much of David that he was recorded as the forebear of Jesus. That Jesus was of the line of David and actually called a son of David compared to others who were cut out of that succession. David was restored, David found redemption and you and I can be restored. We can find Jesus, the Redeemer. David's sin was major. He failed, but he wasn't a failure. 
no matter what. Jesus understands our temptation. So I want to say to you, God, with God, failure isn't final. David's redemption came about when he confessed to Nathan. He became clean and he confessed to God and God wasn't finished with him. I'd like to finish this morning with some words that David himself wrote after that particular episode in his life. I'm going to read it slowly because the words are so powerful. As David expresses, as only the psalmist could, what was going on in his life as a result of being faced up to with his sin. And it comes from Psalm 51. And I would suggest that you either can listen with your eyes closed or you can read it with me silently to yourself because it will be on the screen. And whilst it is written as a psalm, can we treat it as a prayer this morning? Because I don't know each of you and your needs, but I know that this may help some of you. Let me read it. Generous in love, God give grace. Huge in mercy, wipe out my bad record. Scrub away my guilt. Soak out my sins in your laundry. I know how bad I've been. My sins are staring me down. God, make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. Don't throw me out of the trash or fail to breathe holiness in me. Bring me back from grey exile. Put a fresh wind in my soul's sails. Thank you, gracious God. If you prayed that this morning as a personal meeting with God, I encourage you to think about um, speaking to somebody confidentially, perhaps one of the prayer team, perhaps myself. But there's no compulsion on you to do that. I'd be just thrilled if that somehow has helped you this morning. Thank you.